Hi, and welcome to Rolling Dice and Taking Names. This is Marty, and over here is my co-host, the guy who kicked my tail this past Saturday night playing some games. You still feeling pretty good about that? Well, yeah, you know, it was kind of, uh, and what would be the term for it? Um, a hat trick? Never a trifecta? Ha- a ha- oh, yeah, there you go. Never happened before. So, yeah, but good gaming all weekend. Uh, we went over to your house, and we were able to play Eminent Domain, one of our favorite games. And then you broke out Puerto Rico again. Great game. Mm-hmm. Night night before that, me and the neighbors, we broke out Pandemic, kicked its butt. And then Castle Panic wasn't a problem either. So, yeah, it was a great weekend for a winning. <laughs> yeah, I was it. Two games of Eminent Domain and then one game of Puerto Rico, and you took all three, and instead of letting us take our revenge, it's like, all right, I got to go home. Well, of course. <laughs> you always go out on a winning note, man. Come on. You, you got to <laughs> yeah. do that. That's okay. Uh, between you and I, I think um, our eminent domain, I mean, you teach people, and what happens, they kick our butt. You know, Ed and Cecil, who we hope to have on the show later, well, um, you know, we teach them a game, and they kick our butt, Puerto Rico, and all this other stuff. So that's fine. That's good. So anyway, so yeah, so this episode is all about what is a Euro game. I know this is a term that is used a lot in, in the gaming hobby, and and we decided let's just take a whole show and dedicate it to explaining what is a Euro game and how it differs with another type of game called Ameritrash. Marty, did, did you forget something at the start of this, and only because you worked so hard to make it happen? Oh my goodness, I did. I totally did. You say it. No, this was your accomplishment. And I think it, it all goes down to the hard work you've done. We blogged about it. You No, go ahead. It's yours. Totally man. forgot about it. I meant to say welcome to Rolling Dice and Taking Names, member, proud member of the Dice Tower Network. It sounds so good. Like I said, play the beep, beep, beep of a truck. Back it up. Say it again. <laughs> <laughs> Proud member of the Dice Tower Network. That's right. Yes. Yeah. We're pretty. We're pretty excited. Um, we contacted uh, uh, Tom Vassell and his crew. They uh, took a listen at uh, what we've done so far. They were very pleased with it, and invited us to jump on board. And of course, we we jumped at the chance. So we're we're ecstatic to now uh, be on their uh, network along with the other many great podcasts. It's, it's not just us. There are a lot of great podcasts that they. That's on their um, uh, webs featured on their website, and it's at uh, thedicetower.com, and or you can go directly to the network page, which is dicetowernetwork.com, and and check out not only the Dice Tower's main podcast, but all the other podcasts. And uh, I think we're going to get the opportunity every once in a while to maybe help them out with some top ten lists or some reader questions. So we're really excited about this opportunity. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see. I know we just submitted some, and so look forward to that. Look look to be part of the gaming community and hope continue to grow this show just like some of the other great shows that's right that's right so but anyway as i was talking about before uh we are going to be talking about euro games this time and we happen to have a special guest that's going to come on so this is going to be a good discussion let's let's get to it Well, Marty, I understand you were able to arrange a special guest for our podcast tonight. Uh, you met Todd, uh, what, at the um, Queen City Game Club, is that right? Uh, yes, it was about, what, almost, I guess, two years ago now when the Queen City Game Club started, and that's the first time I met Todd, and then you came along, and, and now we're all just good buds, and, and Todd is a very knowledgeable person when it comes to the, uh, the hobby gaming. 
And we thought, what better person to have on to have a discussion about what is a Euro game? So, Todd, welcome to the show. Thank you both for having me. Glad to be here. Uh, we're glad to have you. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's one of those things, Todd. We, we've had a line about credible guest speakers to make us sound credible. And you're <laughs> oh, it, so you buddy. Thought, so you <laughs> that's where me? you come into play. Uh-oh. <laughs> now we're in trouble. I've really enjoyed the first five episodes. I hope this one holds up. Oh, wait a minute. You actually uh, listened? Nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there was five hours you'll never get back, but that's okay. <laughs> we, yeah, we'll, uh, give, we'll, we'll owe you some money, I guess. No, uh, we'll give him a t-shirt when we get him produced there you go yeah, I like it feels the it feels the commute pretty nicely <laughs> oh okay, don't, nice don't put you to sleep. I'm, glad, I'm glad you said commute and not something else so okay. well you know my fantasy football podcasts are all done so <laughs> yeah speaking of what I need something to fill the time yeah todd, todd hosted our fantasy football league and i've still got some issues about going into a keeper league with no keepers but that's another <laughs> thing okay Everybody has to be an expansion team at some point. Uh, yeah. Okay. Thanks. I appreciate that. Yeah. Sure. All right. Well. Very good. Well. All right. Todd. What? But so yeah, I think we're here to talk about Ameritrash and Euro games. Is that right? I, I believe oh, that is that's correct. That's it. And um, so so what it is is in this this hobby that we're or big fans of is there's the these terms that the the games are classified as is like maybe a Euro game or a Ameritrash game and for a lot of people who are just getting into the hobby. They may not know what, where does that come from. Does that mean it's a game that's made in Europe? I mean, what what makes a game a Euro game or a hobby game a Euro game? And so we thought we'd just maybe have a discussion here and explain some of the points and look at some different types of games that uh, have Euro styles and basically what other what are those styles? And then how does that compare to this other thing that we hear about every once in a while called Ameritrash? Sure. And, you know, before we jump into that, I want to ask you guys a question. Um, I want to know, have you ever heard of the Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart? Uh, I have not. He is the justice who was immortalized for writing that he couldn't adequately describe what should be considered hardcore pornography. But he said, I know it when I see it. And I think a lot of people uh, say that about Ameritrash and Euro games. Um, if you ask them to define what an Ameritrash game is or a Euro game is, um, they would have a hard time telling you exactly what it is, but they would tell you, I know one when I see it. Um, and it's, and it's funny that you should say that because when I was gathering my, my thoughts for the podcast, I sat there and thought, if somebody showed me a game, I could say, that's a Euro game. But then if somebody would say why, I would go, uh, well, I wouldn't be able to give a really good, clear definition of it. Uh, right, Exactly. Yeah, I have. I had no clue. I mean, when we started getting into board games, I didn't even know there were these genres. I just thought games were games. So uh, I'm ready to be educated here. Well, Antonio, I think that raises a really good point. Um, you know, Scott Nicholson, who's the former host of Board Games with Scott that everybody loves, um, has argued that the term Ameritrash is actually bad for our hobby. That although we, those of us who love Ameritrash games, have embraced it and take it as an affectionate term, if you're trying to uh, explain games to people who don't play games on a regular basis or whose primary exposure to games has been Monopoly and Trivial Pursuit and Scrabble, uh, who wants to play trash, right? I mean, even if it's good old patriotic American trash, it's still trash, <laughs> and who wants to play that? So, you know, I think it's a very inside baseball term, and I, and I hope that the audience today kind of, you know, appreciates this look at it as far as, you know, trying to understand it. Because if you play hobby games, you're going to hear it, you know, whether you go to read a review or you're on Board Game Geeks or you're at a game store, 
someone's going to mention these terms and um, you know but I think we as hobby gamers should think about the terms we're using and look at some of the alternatives that are being proposed like thematic games or narrative games as ways to describe um, Ameritrash but that's a discussion for another day but I just wanted to say that you know off the bat because I think it is a little intimidating to people who've never heard the term before well so you're saying they're trying to move it towards uh, the more subcategories of of the type of I'll just go ahead and say co-op or resource gathering or that and just get away from that is that what they're moving towards well, I mean, again, you know, I think the Ameritrash term is so well embraced by that community, it's going to be a long process to change it. But I, I think, you know, it, not necessarily the subgenres like you're talking about, but just saying, like, let's come up with another term for Ameritrash, like thematic games. Does that capture what we're talking about? And I think, you know, when we go through the list today of what's Ameritrash and what's Euro, maybe we can um, see what those are. But Okay, so I guess to help help people out here, Let's give an example of, I think, of an Ameritrash game or a Euro game so that they can have it kind of in their mind, and then we can talk about what makes it be considered that versus the other. So, sure. So, Marty, I'll kick it over to you. What comes to your mind, and then Todd can, can either buzz us and say right or wrong or whatever. So what do you think is an Ameritrash game? An Ameritrash game? Um <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, dude. Wow, you put me on yeah. the spot. Um, um, a descent from Fantasy Flight, and the answer is, I would say that probably qualifies as an Ameritrash game. Yes, Fantasy Flight is known as one of the lead publishers of Ameritrash, and that's why I knew that was going to be a safe bet because anything from Fantasy Flight was probably going to fall into that category. Uh, okay, and why is that? Why, why is well, before fan- yeah, go ahead. Before we get to to that, I mean, I think we need to take a step back. And I, what I wanted to do was say that you know, there's a couple categories of games we need to talk about that help us narrow the scope so we can think about Ameritrash and Euro. And um, the first thing we need to do is you know ex- understand why we call them that in the first place. So yeah, I agree. I think we need to step back for a second, and kind of say, what's the definition of a Euro? Are there are there points or, or bullet points or, or check boxes that you could go through and say, okay, this is what would qualify this game as a Euro as opposed to an Ameritrash. Well, before we even get there, let me go. I was reading this book by Stuart Woods, and he's an assistant professor of communication and media studies at the University of Western Australia, right? And um, if you find this stuff kind of interesting, I really recommend the book. It's Your Games, The Design, Culture, and Play of Modern Board Games. And it actually just came out last, last August, so it's really uh, interesting read. If you found this podcast topics uh, interesting you might want to dive into that but um he proposed that before we even get to looking at hobby games we need to set aside a couple of genres of board games and those two are uh, classical games which are generally those games that are highly abstract and whose authors have been lost to the sands of time so like chess parcheesi Mm -hmm. checkers go uh those are all things that we can you know consider classical games and then you have mass market games and these are the proprietary games that have traditionally been carried by the large toy retailers like Scrabble and Monopoly and Trivial Pursuit and Taboo and then licensed games like Glee the board game and Dancing with right. the Stars the board game right? and so those are kind of the mass market games um, and so those are probably the two genres that have been most well known in American popular culture right, right. Um, and but 
over the course of the late 20th century, there was this other genre of games developing. And um, actually, in 1999, and Oxford History of Board Games uh, named them specialist games. Uh, most of us today think of them as hobby games, but they thought, we're going to call these specialist games. And, and if you'll uh, indulge me for a minute, I'll quote from them. They said, these may be characterized as games of skill and strategy, appealing to players broadly describable as adult, serious, educated, and intelligent. Many of these share the associated features of classic games, from which category they are only excluded by their appeal to a specialist section of the market. So, I guess the the point here is that hobby games have traditionally been defined in this negative way, um, in right. that they're defined by excluding them. You know, like, okay, well, it's not a mass market game and it's not a classic game, so it must be a hobby game. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it, it totally okay. does. And so, and you're like, well, what does all this matter? Why does it, how does this get to us to Ameritrash and Euros? Well, what's happened is if you look at a game like Catan it started picking up some of these traits of mass market games, right? Like it's being carried in major retailers and it's adopting mm-hmm. some of the gimmicks of the mass market games like licensing, like as we've seen in Star Trek. Catan. Star Trek. So right. if you start saying, well, that's, well, that's a mass market game now and suddenly it's out of the hobby game category. And, and that's kind of the confusion that's coming in. And so people have said, well, how can we take a look at hobby games and identify them more clearly, separate them from these mass market and classical games. And so one of the ways that people have done this is Ameritrash and Euros. Okay. So whenever we, a lot of the things that we've talked about in, in, uh, past uh, podcasts as far as Casual Corner, we, we tend to bring that up a lot in that you can now find this game now in a, a big box store, the Walmarts, the Targets, and stuff like that, especially Target. Target seems to be <laughs> targeting uh, th- this segment of the market by bringing in the games such as uh, uh, Catan and uh, uh, Ticket to Ride and stuff right. like that. And uh, so when I've talked to people about these types of games where you can go to get it, it can be confusing because now you're looking at games on the shelf that's sitting beside your monopolies and your sorries and stuff like that. Right. That share the same shelf space as those games. They may think it's the same type of game, but it's not. Right. Exactly. And so I guess that's the question: is what is it? Right. So um, you know, and I think a common perception first is: do Ameritrash games have to come to them from America, and do Euros have to come from Europe? Well, I mean. I would say no, yeah. but uh, I thought it know, was the it, quality of the game. I thought it was the components, the the ultimate theme of the game. No, exactly. I, I think that's exactly right. And I think Marty said no, but and that's exactly what I would say no, but because uh, Euros are designed in America now. Um, I recently played Ground Floor, which was a Tasty Minstrel game. I think that's very much a Euro. Um, and then an Ameritrash game being designed in Europe. I think I would point to the hit 4X um, Eclipse. Uh, from the Finnish publisher uh, Pellet. I'm sure I'm butchering that, but anybody else know how to say <laughs> hey, that? You better than At least you attempted it. That's pretty good. <laughs> and and but I, I think some people are sitting there listening right now who know this and are like, no, those games aren't pure Euros or pure Ameritrash. And I'm like, well, no. I think we're seeing a lot of blending, but I, I think you know, Ground Floor has a lot of Euro in it, and 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 Eclipse has a lot of Ameritrash in it. So. Um, the actual geographic place of production doesn't matter, but it's the design philosophies, and they originated from America and from Europe. And actually, if we're being precise, Ameritrash originated in Anglo-American culture. So, because you'll find that companies like the UK's Games Workshop uh, play a large right. role in the development of Ameritrash. Um, and when we, with their miniatures type games, exactly. Whereas uh, right. continental Europe is really where you find the the Euro games coming from. So. Um, and I know that's been a lot of build-up, 
but I thought it was important to have that context. And I want to go a little bit deeper than that, but I think let's get to the crux of the matter, something you guys have been bringing up the whole time. Like, what is People just want the answer to this question, right? You have a game. It wasn't designed in Asia 2,000 years ago, and it doesn't end in Opoly. So what is it, <laughs> right? Uh, well, let's go down this basic checklist. I just pulled this from Board Game Geek. You know, to kind of give us some context. So, yeah, I think the first question you can ask is, does it have direct player conflict? I.e., can I attack you? Uh, if so, you can put a check mark in the Ameritrash column, right? Okay, yeah, I agree. If the player conflict is indirect, if it just involves competition for resources or points, um, you could check a box for Euro. Right. Okay? Um, the next question is, can a player be eliminated from the game? Uh, if yes, you could put that checkbox in Ameritrash. If everyone gets to play till the end of the game, it's probably a Euro. Um, the next question to ask is, does luck play a medium to high role in the game? If it's got a lot of luck, check the Ameritrash box. Uh, if luck plays little to no role in the game, then check the box for Euro. And finally, uh, does it have a highly developed theme? It's integral to the game. It includes characters, heroes, or factions with specific abilities. Uh, if yes, you can check the box for Ameritrash. Uh, if gameplay is really the priority and, and theme is secondary, then you can check the box for Euro. Really? Right. Yeah. So, I'd see, that one, that one surprised me. I'll, I'll be honest with you. I thought it was the other way. Well, no, because if you think about the game, you talked about Descent, right? Uh, there's, you know, there isn't direct player conflict, but there's direct conflict with the game itself, right? So Descent has direct conflict with the GM, if you will. Um, pl- players can be eliminated from the game. Um, luck plays a high role because there's a lot of dice rolling, right, and about the items that you find. And then it has a highly developed theme. It's a dungeon crawl. It's got, you know, specific characters, and you know, you're going into this dungeon to raid it. Um, whereas if you look at a game like, say, Agricola, you know, you're a farmer, um, right. and you're trying to build this farm. And But really, it's not about that. It's not like, how can we convey this feeling that you're a farmer in medieval times? You know, it's, okay, we've got this great game mechanic going, and we need to give it a theme. Does that make sense? And, and so I actually found a, a list, too, um, from a, a person, a blogger online, who kind of wrote his list. And it's a lot of the exact same things. And when it came to the theme thing, he, he had a good, concise statement. He said, abstract to the point that the theme appears to be tacked on. Like it's they can't, you come up with a good idea for a gameplay type thing, and then at the end you go, okay, so what is this going to be about? Oh, it's going to be about farming. But it could have been about anything. Right, exactly. As opposed to maybe starting out the other way, it was like, I want to really make this cool sci-fi game with these different factions and stuff, and then go from there. Right. And I think we can look at some other examples of Ameritrash and kind of see that. Like Arkham Horror, which I think you guys talked about in your co-op episode, is a classic example of an Ameritrash game, right? Like, it's all about the Cthulhu experience, and the you've got your specialized characters that have specific abilities, and it's about the horror theme, and you're participating in a narrative. But but in my mind, it's it, that's all it's got, because other than that, you're a co-op game looking at all the players trying to achieve a single goal so you know when you go down that list you get one checkbox right. well no, well let me clarify too that i see the term direct player conflict used a lot to mean like player on player although i found some you know in reading about it there were some other people who argued that that well that's not really the difference is you're actually in conflict with the game whereas a euro typically feels more like multiplayer solitaire Right. Okay. So okay. you're in conflict with something in the game itself, um, 
you know, which you have in Arkham Horror. Um, you know, players, uh, I guess in Arkham Horror, players can't be eliminated from the game, but they can because they always reboot, right? But luck plays a huge role. Right. right. I, I, I don't know or, if Marty's played that one, so yeah. Okay. Elder Sign, oh, of course. That's just yeah, Yahtzee right. with, with monsters. Got gotcha. you. Right. And as the the theme is really the key part. They're like, okay, we want to make this cool Cthulhu game. What, how can we make this work? Um, Axis and Allies is another classic Ameritrash game um, where it's really about fighting World War II. Um, you know, that's the primary purpose of the game is to make you, you know, and... You know, people argue how effectively it does, but it's, you know everybody wants to feel like they're fighting World War II. It's not like oh, we got this cool mechanic where you're going to build infantry and tanks and fighters and stuff, and then oh, we'll just slap World War II on it, right? Like, yeah, and I think it's also important to realize too that not every checkbox has has to be checked for it to be an Ameritrash or Euro. That's true. In fact, I think yeah, there's going to be exceptions to the rules in in every case, and it's probably better to think of it as a scale. Right, you've got like the pure Euro and the pure Ameritrash, and then there's stuff that falls all the way in between. Right. There was a uh, another thing that I saw on the list about what made a Euro, and I kind of agree with this one too. It's there's only a few plausible or reasonable choices each turn, meaning that Euro games like to give you choices to make during your turn, and I see that a lot with Euro style games where. Uh, you can do A, B, or C, and you need to take these steps. You know, or uh, you know, Catan's uh, a perfect example. You know, you you start out and you roll the dice and you collect the resources. Then what do you do then? Well, I could I could build, or maybe I could trade, and it's just a, a handful of uh, choices. But not everybody's going to make the exact same choice on their turn. Yeah, I could see though. I must feel like uh, I would argue that you're almost trying to force that into the box. There, I mean, does that really help us decide whether it's an Ameritrash or a Euro? I, because I could, see, I mean, how do you define how many choices are you talking about? Right choices or just choices? Because you know, say Axis and Allies again, for instance, there's only so many choices you can make in your turn. Yeah, you know, more than three right. probably, but you know, maybe maybe five. Yeah, or six. well, I mean, well so this author actually said that too many choices is going to obscure things and then take it too long, and then they think then it goes into more of the Ameritrash thing, right? Which it could be the more the Axis Allies, the the Games Workshop type game where you just have almost infinite things you can do on your turn. That's true. Well, and I think Last Night on Earth is another good example of an Ameritrash. You know, it's definitely about the zombie, and they're like, how can we represent, you know, zombies attacking? Um, and the game is all about giving you that feeling of being in a, a zombie attack. And I could see that, you know, the number of choices you were talking about there. Maybe that is a good way to, to look at that. Yeah, but it's just one of a list of, of like 10 or 12 that I saw. You know, it's, and, uh, and most of them are the ones that you were talking about. One of them that he had on there that I didn't agree with Rarely takes more than an hour to play. Well, I was actually going to mention that because I think that that is a, you know, hour to an hour and a half is the typical Euro game. Um, I don't think it necessarily, but I, I agree with you. I don't necessarily, I would necessarily exclude something from being a Euro just because it went over that, but it would definitely make me think about it. Like, okay, if this game takes three hours, is it really a Euro at that point or just a, a game that borrowed Euro mechanics? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's true. And um, another one was... Um, very little downtime between uh, when, when it's not your turn. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. Yeah. Now, Tony threw out one the other day. Uh, you were saying something about wooden pieces or something? Yeah, it was on Board Game Geek, and it was just wood pieces versus plastic pieces, the components of the game. Those are some of the things that other people use. But, you know, that's just, like you were saying, the theme of it or along those lines. It's just how people look at it. Right. And 
So I, I wouldn't know on on that. I don't think I, you could throw wooden pieces in with uh, Arkhamhara or something like that, and it would still meet the qualities I think I've heard you gentlemen talk about. Right, and that's the thing. I think that I saw that one too, and I almost felt like that was a little outdated, like because you know people are moving on to other pieces and stuff, and and it's becoming so easy to source wooden pieces or plastic pieces or whatever that. I, you know, I feel like that's not essential to, you know, wooden pieces is not what makes a Euro, like you said. Ticket to Ride uses plastic trains, right. so, you know. Yeah, and I mean, so it, it comes down, so I guess what listening to you guys, because I'll be honest with you, I, I'm learning here, so it was, it was quite amazing. Um, what I heard was that various styles, you could go either, you could call it this or call it that, but all in all, I guess the big point, Todd, that you were saying at the beginning is we're trying to step away from that. Is that true? Well, I want to say we're we're trying to step away from using the term Ameritrash. I don't know that, you know, and there are probably some people who would say, no, we're not trying to move away from it. But I, I don't think we're trying to, we're trying to figure out a different way to describe these mechanisms. Like, okay, so if it's direct player conflict, players can be eliminated from the game. There's lots of luck and it has a highly developed theme. Is there another way we could describe that? Is that a narrative game? Is that instead of a Meritrash? Do you know okay. what I mean? It's more. It's more of a no. It's more of a name thing. It's not that we're trying. I think people feel like these are fair categories. Now you can go further down into the subgenres, which I'm sure you guys have been talking about as far as worker placement and you know uh, action selection, et cetera, et cetera. But you really they're trying to keep these two general, you know, large groups um, defined. And the question is: Is a Meritrash a fair term? Can we come up with some better way to describe that? Well, I do think that is a negative sounding term. Mm. And when I first ran across that term several years ago, I mean, it, it I mean, it, in the context, it's like, um, you know, a Euro style is like, sounds, Ooh, very elite and very cool and, and proper. Mm. And Ameritrash is like, yeah, somebody just threw something together and it's really not that good. Yeah. Right. And it, you know, I think there are people who would say, well, yeah, that's true. Euros are superior. <laughs> if you go to any game forum, you know, in the world and, and search for Ameritrash versus Euro, you will find dozens and dozens of threads of arguing, people arguing each other about which is better. Um, I personally like both, but, you know, I could. Sure. Yeah. Same here. Yeah. I, and, and it, I was surprised when we were watching that Vassal thing on co-op games, uh, that he that one guy said, "Hey, no, I, I hate Euro games." So I sometimes wonder what makes someone hate a particular style of games. And I guess you just you don't like the um, like you were saying the various. It's going to be an hour. It's going to be me. It's I'm the one who's playing for the victory points, and I have a set way of doing things. Where some people may like the randomness. So yeah, that well, surprised me a little bit. And here there was one post on. Board Game Geek that I found that I really thought was interesting, and it was getting a lot of props um, from people for taking an alternate look at the way to define these games. And his name is Jeremy Calgreen, and he's an artist and aspiring game designer. And he argues that there's really three genres, and that each one has a core priority, right? And the first is that Ameritrash, its core priority is drama. And that a Eurogame's core priority is elegance, and the Wargame's core priority is realism. Um, and essentially what he's saying is that if you look at a game like Axis and Allies, uh, the whole idea there is to create drama, um, emphasizing drama through direct player conflict, through player elimination, through moments of crazy luck, and through a compelling narrative. Like, you're participating in this story, you're recreating World War II, and it's going to come down to whether or not his anti-aircraft shoot down your bomber, and, you know, 
and you won't be able to take that key territory and win the game. You know, and you know, basically, a f- like your your Twilight Imperium game that you played, right? It's like a five or six hour build up to a final showdown where you and another human being are standing among the ruins of other defeated player empires, hoping for the dice to break your way and stand so you can stand alone as the victor. Like, there's a real thrill to that, and that's why you leave Twilight Imperium feeling so exhausted, right? Whereas, right, you know, uh, yeah, that's that's one way to put it. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> just just kidding. No, yeah, right. it, it was a great experience. It really was. I, well, I, I didn't want last time when we were talking about. It, I didn't want them to think it was. It was a great experience. But you're right. Yes, we felt exhausted. And hey, when you started making that final attack, yes, you're absolutely right. I am king of the mountain. <laughs> but but you know that, that's a great point because I'll go back to I don't know a month ago, Todd, when we played uh, Eclipse. And you remember the big final battle yeah. in the center of the map and how, I mean, it's like the game all culminated to a pile of ships in the middle of the board. Right. And the game was uh, re, uh, decided on this huge final battle. And there's the drama that you were just talking about. Exactly. And that's what he would argue is the core purpose of Ameritrash is to create that sense of drama um, through compelling narrative and the player conflict. Whereas a Euro game is about the experience. It's You're supposed to be emphasizing this elegant game experience, and you're, re- and you're relying on indirect competition. You're giving every player a chance to see the game through the end. Uh, you're reducing the impact of luck and, and you know making it all about their decisions during the game, and you're just trying to create a really compelling gameplay experience. You want people to mm-hmm. want to play that game. And so it's not about you know being involved in the narrative and the drama. It's about you know liking the game for what the game is. And I think a good prime example of that, Tony, what we just played a while ago, Puerto Rico. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I remember I told you, I just, I love the gameplay of that game. I love the experience of playing that game and the rules and how they work together and stuff, which is totally different than what I felt playing Eclipse Twilight Imperium. Exactly. And I think there's an argument to be made that his definitions of them are, are. are broad enough that we can look at the essence of the game and say, aha, this probably is more of an Ameritrash, and we aren't going to worry about whether or not you know it has wooden pieces or not, or whether there's player elimination. It's more about, does this create, is this the goal of this game to create a sense of drama, or is it to make you appreciate the game itself? Um, right. You know, and, what, and what was the third? It was... Um, War Games. War Games, um, And okay. he said that their primary goal is to create realism. Um, and he would say that each of the games will sacrifice the other two areas, you know, that, that the Ameritrash game will sacrifice elegance and realism in name of drama, whereas the Euro game will sacrifice drama and realism for elegance, and the war game will sacrifice both drama and elegance to recreate uh, the battle lines around Stalingrad. Right. Huh. Okay. That's interesting. Okay. Well, very. Well, see, you, when you were talking about it and reading the list of the Euro games, I see Settlers of Catan, and you said minimize the luck. Okay. So I kind of sometimes get confused by that, and that's what you know from the listener standpoint. That's what we're trying to do is say, you know, when you hear these terms, you, you got to keep them in perspective, and it really comes down to, I guess, what games you like to play, right? Right. Exactly. Yeah, well, there is luck in Catan, and we've talked about that before, but I won't go there. Yeah, and there's a whole there's a whole discussion about well, there can still be luck, but Euros uh, lets you react to the luck as opposed to your outcome being determined by the luck. Um, right. You know, and I guess that's you know how you could defend Catan as still being a Euro. Um, no, and, and no, I I totally agree that it is, but. Uh, it's just one of those things that, you know, I got my guys on a six. And wow, a six never coming up. But that, that's another story. 
so true. Unless, unless your poor rolling skills coming through. So. <laughs> no, that's true. And everybody else has rolling skills too, obviously. Yes, exactly. So, but once again, but if your strategy in, you figure it out, and then you'll be able to play it. So that's interesting. All right. Well, very good then. Well, so um, so let's do. We want to now talk about. Okay, we've kind of explained some of the the, the definitions mm-hmm. of, of the games. Do we just want to maybe? Do we want to touch on examples of games and and kind of where they fall? Are there ones that are kind of gray areas that you want to talk about? Or there's, you know, we talked about earlier. There are pure Euros and pure Ameritrash and then something in the middle. Right. You know, maybe what's some pure Euros, some pure Eurotrash, Ameritrash. And I think uh, the pure Euros are things like Catan, um, Carcassonne, um, yep. Agricola. Yep. And, you know, like you mentioned, Puerto Rico, La Havre. Um, all those games are your your core Euro experience. Um, and for me personally, what's been interesting is to see the kind of hybrids come out. I know I mentioned them already in this game, but like Eclipse has a lot of elements of a Euro in it, in it, in that your decision-making is all driven, um, you know, by the, the worker placement mechanic, um, but that has a lot of the elements of an Ameritrash game in that it lasts six hours and, you know, there's luck in the way the tiles come up and in the battles and that, you know, p- people can be eliminated, you know. But the game does have a finite end of, I think it's nine rounds. It's been a little bit since I played it. But, you know, so there is that chance that everybody can stay in it to the game and it's determined by victory points, not by who, you know, conquers two capitals. Right? So, you know, it's kind right. of this interesting meld between the Euro and the Ameritrash Seems like, uh, um, again, I can always think of exceptions, but you talked about victory points. Mm-hmm. Seems like a lot of Euro games are, are based on acquiring positive points that are accumulated at the end, and the person who has the most wins. Right, and that's their way of trying to get around this direct conflict mechanic, right? Because if you're, if you're not making it about one player defeating another, then you have to have some means of allowing for victory, and victory points tends to be the most popular way to do that. Right, like you don't need victory points in Axis and Allies because you conquer two capitals and that's it, right? Or you know. exactly, but yeah. So I, you know, I just think about all all the you know the games you just mentioned. Most those, most of the Euro games, most of those require victory points to determine a winner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and but uh, but as opposed to some of the Meritrash games we talked about, I just like uh, you said, you know, Axis and Allies. I threw out. Descent a while ago. None of that has none of that's victory point based. Right. Rune There's Wars, other means yeah. to win. Um, eminent domain is one that uh, I think would fall in the Euro category for the most part. Really? Yeah. If you think about I it, agree. there's no I agree. there's no direct player conflict. Players can't be eliminated from the game. Uh, luck doesn't really play much of a role in the game. If you think about it, it's you know it's all about you, if you're card counting, you know where your cards are going to be for the most part in the deck, and I mean, I love the game, but it doesn't have a very highly developed theme. I mean, you could yeah. easily make that game about the Roman Empire. You know, well, it's, yeah, and where ship size does not matter in that game. Yeah, that's right. Ship size does that. not matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, that's true. And now, now that you mentioned Eminent Main, so I'm thinking most deck building games I've played are probably going to be considered Euro. Uh, Dominion definitely is. That's when I saw some people. You know, I, you know. I guess my question in Dominion is whether or not when you start adding some of the expansions that allow more direct actions against other players, that might get you towards True. it. But I still think it's primarily a Euro. Yeah, I was going to say, even in the first Dominion, you had a card where you had to protect against someone making you 
discard cards or things like that or even if you keep going down thunderstone thunderstone you're battling the dungeon um i don't remember marty if in thunderstone if we had direct player conflict you you, you did not know um but it was the same thing where you still i mean most of those games i have played the deck building they're the whole concept is there's there's points somewhere on the cards or something you're trying to collect and it's typically indirect conflict with other people right and now now that we mentioned indirect conflict I, uh, i've brought this up before in previous podcast about uh my wife likes to game but she is definitely more into the games where there is less uh confrontation between players mm-hmm. And and now that I think back, I think she probably leans more towards Euro style games than any other style of game because she's not really into that direct conflict type mm-hmm. deal. And I think on my side, it's more of a the co op gamer the the ability to like you not do the direct conflict, but there needs to be some type of theme. There needs to be some type of end game where we all work towards it. So I think that would put me on the other side. On the, on the Ameritrash side. Right. But what would you consider Pandemic? I would consider it um, um, actually based on what we just had a discuss, discussion about. I put it on Ameritrash because I, I have com- conflict against the board. It is yeah. a strong theme of a game of battling to save the world, you know, viruses, things like that. Right. And luck does play a significant role in that, correct? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, without a doubt, with the epidemics and where they're drawn or which cards you do. If you just, like we said, Marty, last podcast, the game's over in five minutes. If you pull all red cities, it's a luck of a card draw. You're absolutely right. Yeah. So are there any co-op games that are considered Euro games? Well, Dramatic balls. Yeah, Dramatic that's balls, a good question. Yeah. That's a question well, we should have asked before the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I mean, if you think about it, it's always against, I mean, if you think about the the amount of co-ops that are coming out, we have a standpoint of, you know, it's always against the board. Zombie side, Night of the Living Dead is considered a co-op game, but yet you're battling each other. I mean, it's all that. It, it's a battle, and, they're strong, and there's usually strong themes. What would be a co-op game without a strong theme, I guess, would be my point. Well, I, I can't think of one. Um, right. So, I mean, we we, we mentioned it. the old Harkham series. There's three of those, but all those have very strong themes. I just got Flashpoint that has a strong theme behind it. Well, so and you know, the Euros can still have you know the, the you know they obviously all have themes. The question is, you know, did the theme was the theme the genesis of the game or the the game led to a theme? Sort of thing. And I um, think that's it. The theme theme is the genesis behind it. Space Cadet. It's all the same. Red October. Right. So. It's all drama focused, yeah. right? Right. So you go back to your original three points: uh, the the realism, drama, and and um, elegance. elegance. Right. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad we have cameras. Y'all can see me counting on my fingers. There. I knew I had to get to <laughs> yeah. three. Well, you'll have to ask. You'll have to ask your listeners to write in with examples of co-ops that they think are uh, euros. Yeah, that that would be interesting. Um, see what anybody comes up with. I was just trying to think of some other games that. Uh, that we've talked about before on other podcasts and where they fall. We mentioned um, Lords of Waterdeep. I guess that would be considered more of a Euro style. That's a, that's an interesting one because that's one of those games we talked about being in between. Like a lo- what some people have liked about it and other people have hated is that it actually does have some elements of direct conflict and the, to the extent that you can assign people with those mandatory quests. Um, and the 
Oh yeah. And that you you have you can affect people's buildings, although that is probably very similar to um, La Havre. So you know, but really the ability to play the mandatory quest on other people has led some people to question: Well, is this a pure euro or is it a tainted euro, if you will? You know, for the people who like their euros pure, I personally think it's a you know an interesting twist to the euro mechanic. But yeah, and actually, it's an example of one of those games we talked about earlier earlier that it's a euro style game but made in the U.S. Exactly. That, that not every game comes out of Europe that's a Euro-style game. Right. Well, and that, you know, if we have a few minutes, I know we've been going for a while, but I, I found this really interesting. Go for it. And again, if you go back to, I, I highly recommend Wood's book if you really want to get into this. I'm going to try to stay at 30,000 feet. But, you know, the question that came to me was, why do we have these two different genres? Like, what is it about America? Why did America come up with Ameritrash and Europe come up with um, the Euro game? And, yeah, uh, and Todd, I hate to interrupt you yeah, here, but that's... Uh, exactly. I didn't know the terms existed till Marty put on them. I would have been happy to stay in utter, complete, total ignorance <laughs> bliss. <laughs> but you've no. Heard of, you've heard of Euro games for years. That's nothing new to you. No, I'll be honest with you. Euro games? No. I thought I thought maybe – I'll be honest with you. How, how sad I am on this is I really thought it was if they had a German – rules with them then I was that that's a Euro game. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's funny. For you a lot uh, yeah, oh, it ahead. has to has had the designer's name on the front of the box, exactly. right? Is that the other thing? That, that's a Euro game because I can't get I have to, you know, do a conversion of money. I you know, that to me was a Euro game, so I appreciate all that. But sorry, Todd, go back well, no, to your that's book good. here. Because like before the year two thousand that was probably a really good guideline. Um, you know, it's only in the last 15 years or so German that it's rules. changed. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's well, well think funny. about it. That's all you hear about, okay? I mean, you know, it came from what – and Todd, please pronounce it because I can't – I hate to put you on the spot, but I just call it spiel. You know, that's what I'm thinking right there, you know. I'm, all good games, those are Euro games to me. That, that oh, you mean little, that the spiel awards? Yeah. And Sounds I, good I to me. <laughs> So, he didn't, he's not going to try it. I don't blame you. Uh, so anyway, I already had to try to pronounce the 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 Finnish producer guy. of uh, Eclipse. I'm not going there. <laughs> I don't blame you, man. Yeah. I f- I figured you knew it. To be honest with you, <laughs> I um, think it is spiel. But I'm I, I you know I read these things more than I hear them. So you know who knows. Right. Yeah, so so back to Woods' book. What were you, oh, okay. Sorry, what were well, you no. Saying? It, it basically made the point that if you think about post-war America. The big gaming companies were resting on their laurels. I mean, they had Monopoly. They were coming out Life. Um, Scrabble was coming soon. You know, they had these big mass market games that m- dominated the family gaming market. Right, so that left a niche for other development because they weren't putting any more money in innovation. They were making money hand over fist off Monopoly. Right, so um, what you had in America then was basically war gaming coming out of the sim- military simulations after World War II, right? And uh, this really peaked in the 70s and early 80s with Avalon Hill. Um, you know, but so the core of the American gaming community was kind of grown up on these war games that were, you know... Oh, and, and, and weren't those bookcase games? I remember going into a, a bookstore. I even had one, Panzer... I think it was Panzer Leader or Panzer Jam. Panzer Blitz, probably. But Panzer Blitz, and I had it. You popped out all the little chits, and you put them down there. Never understood how to play the game, but, yeah, I remember those. those. I mean, doesn't, this fall, doesn't Risk, Stratego fall on that same thing? No, I don't think so. I mean, the, a lot of those were attempts to 
by the well, okay. I'm not gonna, my understanding. I'll let somebody correct me, but my understanding is those were attempts to try to capitalize on this interest in war games by creating lighter fare, uh, much like Axis and Allies is considered an attempt. You know, that whole Games Master series was an attempt by Milton Bradley to figure out a way to capitalize on the popularity of wargaming, but still have a more mass market appeal. Um, and okay. Axis and Allies was actually... I loved all those games. I had all the Games Master series, but Axis and Allies is the only one that ever had any commercial success. Um, you know, a lot of people... I guess the reprint of Fortress America by Fantasy Flight last year, and uh, what was called Shogun then is now out again by the new Avalon Hill. But, um, you know, those are more, I think, niche games that never really caught on. Um, so I think Stratego... Stratego's been around for a long time, though, right? Oh, yeah. Great. I think it has, yeah. yeah. I don't... Yeah. I'm not sure when Risk came out. Oh, it's been... Yeah, I don't know. I had... My dad gave me from when he was a kid when I was young, so I'm not even sure how long. Anyway, to answer your question, I don't, anyway, I don't know. Right, so back to the, I, th- I think we, would we consider Risk and Stratego to be the mass market games? Maybe they fall in the sort of monopoly range? I don't know. Okay. But anyway, back to your point. So we're coming out of the uh, post-war and right. uh, we got... Because it's obvious that Risk and Stratego games. are not on the same level as, say, Panzer Blitz, right? Um, so, you know, you're no, talking about right. these really hardcore... You know, this could take days to finish. The rule books were incredibly huge. Um, you know, and there's time. He's got a whole discussion about why this went on in favor. I'm going to leave that there for you to read. But um, what was interesting to me, yeah, that's our homework assignment, Tony. Was got it, homework. Hey, hey, we got to remember link and put it in the the blog. Already got the, it. You already got it. You are the man. I'll, I'll get it. I'll get it later. <laughs> so right. he talks about how in the 70s, then you had. Um, Wargaming enthusiasts who were enjoying playing with their miniatures battles, but wanted a more complex narrative. And that led to the birth of Dungeons and & Dragons and role-playing games. Right? So RPGs kept this legacy of complex rules and conflict-focused gameplay, although it was party versus the environment instead of other players. Um, but they really added these deep, ongoing narratives, um, and they spread to every theme available. Right? Fantasy, sci-fi, modern, ancient times. You had role-playing games for everything. And this really kind of you know, became... you. Know, a big part of the gaming culture in America. So you've got the military wargaming games, you have this evolving into the popularity of role-playing games, and then you had Richard Garfield and Magic in 1993. And that rocked both their worlds, and suddenly everybody was trying to put out a collectible card game, and everybody who had an RPG was trying to create a a card game that could emulate their RPG. Um, And CCGs uh, didn't really try to achieve, achieve... Sorry... Collectible card games didn't really seek to achieve simulation like its predecessors, like role-playing and like wargaming, but it did right. maintain this focus on direct conflict and theme and added this idea that you could build your deck out of the game and bring it, and so you really got significant tailoring of your playing experience to give you unique advantages and disadvantages. So if you think of all of this together, instead of thinking of them in isolation or separate movements, but as one big part of the American gaming culture, this wargaming and role-playing and CCGs, you could see how these would influence the Ameritrash games that were being born during this time, like Cosmic Encounter, right? Specialized roles. Um, right. That, and you can break a rule, you know. Um, Dungeon, if you ever played that, the TSR Dungeon game, or uh, Dune, Wiz War. Right. All these games were heavily influenced by this, and it all yep. shows this progression of, of thought about American gaming and what it should be. Um, and if you go back to the traits that we listed earlier, you can kind of see all these all these different things that have come along reflect that. Right. So, 
Um, that was a great history of uh, uh, post-war American gaming right there, and, uh, <laughs> how, how the Meritrash happened. So let me ask you this. Did, did the book talk anything about how the Euro style got started? It did. Where did the birth of that come from? Uh, ironically, it came from an American, um, an American company, 3M. Um, in 1962, right, was uh, not looking, the same 3M we know, is it? Uh, I believe it is. My understanding, it's the same 3M. Uh, but oh. they were looking to produce a line of adult strategy games that they would call bookshelf games. And if you've ever played Acquire by Sid Saxon, mm-hmm. either of you? No, okay. I, I've heard of it. I never. But played or it. if you uh, ever had, if you ever saw those bookshelf games, like you were saying, so Panzer Blitz becoming a bookshelf game was really part of a reaction to this whole movement. And 3M had this real wildly successful bookshelf game series. Um, and Acquire was really the, the leadoff by Sid Saxon, who became you know one of the most well-named game designers of, of the period. Um, and he had no greater success than in Germany, for some reason. Well, you know, so why Germany? Um, and Woods, the author of the book, points to three factors. Um, first, so remember we talked about in America, you had these, the family board game market was really dominated by these major IP. Well, Germany, uh, coming out of World War II, didn't have any major titles like that. There was no, you know, IP for them to produce. Um, you know, they couldn't rely on Monopoly or Clue or Scrabble. So if they were going to compete, if they were going to provide their own products to the family gaming market, they had to develop them. Um, you know, so unlike the U.S. and U.K., where family games were dominated by these, you know, major licenses, that wasn't the the case. Um, you also had this idea in Germany. They had a long history going back to the 18th century of producing really high-quality toys and games. I mean, this was a big deal. It's something Germany was known for. I didn't know that before I you know, read Wood's book, but apparently, I mean, I think about it now. I'm like, oh, well, that, that um, what's the uh, shoot? Um, the play my daughter goes to see every year uh, at Christmas time. Um, the Nutcracker, uh, right? Oh, yeah. Sound, yeah, sound, right. Oh, The Nutcracker. It's the sound of yeah, music. Right. Okay, so The Nutcracker, you know, it's all about making these fantastic toys and everything. You know, it's kind of out of this tradition that, you know, Germans are, are known for this and they want to go back to making it, but they don't have any of their own IP right now. They're going to have to make it, right? Um, and also this idea that their media culture really believed in this idea that board games were a legitimate leisure pursuit, right? So you have this long tradition of making great toys, this belief that it's actually cool to play games as a leisure activity, and um, they need to fill the gap that's lost. So, um, and also you have, you know, sorry, the, the, this post-war culture that has just come out of you know, World War II and their feelings about conflict, right? So they're trying to, for lack of a better term, they're trying to avoid direct conflict games. Sure, so, yep, makes sense. So Acquire, um, which if you haven't played it, you should look it up, but essentially uh, is the quintessential Euro game. Like, it's the granddaddy of Euro games, and it really caught on. And so German game designers in the early 70s were like, this game was a big hit, let's copy that. And so they basically created this whole culture of family gaming. The Spiel Awards helped drive this idea that it's cool to be a game designer, you're actually an author of a thing, and it's going to end up in households all over Germany. And so it was really taking off. Um, and it was all primed to take the world by storm, in the 1990s with Catan being brought over to the U.S. And, mm-hmm. you know, people tried at this convention and they were like, it's great, this is awesome, I need to find more stuff like this. And luckily we'd invented this cool thing called the internet which allowed us to reach out to our friends in Germany and find out, you know, what they were playing. And it drove this huge demand for German games. And they were called German games at that point. Um, but 
of course, Germans weren't the only people designing these games. There were other people in Europe who were interacting with the German designers and making those games too. And the demand from the U.S. was so insatiable that other Euro designers were like, well, you know, I have a Euro game that I'll, uh, you know, I have a game that I'll sell you. So they became more broadly known as Euro games. Um, and so that's kind of where the Euro game came from, out of this post-war German culture that needed something to fill the family board gaming space. They innovated hard to create it, and then it spread through all of Europe, and the internet helped to bring it to America, and now we're living in interesting times. I am so enlightened over here right now. <laughs> or asleep. Lord. Or asleep. I can't tell which. <laughs> I, I have, Lord. I mean, that's, 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 I need to look at this book. I may have to go get this book and read it, because it sounds really interesting. I mean, oh, well, of, of course. I mean, we, we got to add it to the list of things. If we're going to be doing this podcast, man, we got we to gotta show that we have a little cred. Hence, we brought Todd <laughs> on the show. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. Well, that's I hope, just the way it is. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, you know, Tony was right earlier. Those early Euro games did have rules written in German. So, thank you, you know. thank you. I'm vindicated. There you go. That's all there is to it. All right. Well, before I know we try to keep this to about an hour, but I did want to ask, you know, so Todd, what are your, if you can think of them, what top three Euro games would you recommend for? people out there if they if they said well i want to go try one i'm used to playing monopoly and i won't mm. go try them what three would you say you really should try these three yeah if you're brand new to the hobby and you've never played it i know that some of us who've been in the hobby a long time uh you know look you know look down on Catan. i'll just be honest there's a, there's kind of a like ah oh, Catan. but if you've never played a euro you should play Catan. it's a great game um you know we went back and played just uh, a couple months ago with all the expansions and six players and I've forgotten how much fun it is to, to break it out that way and I think that it, you if you haven't ever played Catan you should give it a try um, if you've played Catan and you're looking to take the next step up the uh, challenge level I think that Agricola is a fantastic game for getting you used to uh, a very common mechanic in Euros the worker placement um, I think that is a really solid game um, and Definitely, you know, you play a lot like it, but I think that's a really good one. Um, and then, you know, this is going to sound funny to say, but I really like Lords of Waterdeep. Uh, and like I said, it's, a, it's an odd one to pick because it's not necessarily your traditional Euro, but I think it captures enough of the Euro ideas that you'll be comfortable with it. And it's it's a nice segue. Actually, I would probably say before you play Agricola, play Lords of Waterdeep because it's a mm-hmm. nice transition from Catan to Agricola. Yeah, because Agricola would probably be the the most complex game of of all of three, right? From I mean, I played it once, and <clears throat> I was I had always wanted to play it. I was quite amazed by it. Yeah, it really, I think it is of those three, it's the most complex. Okay, so Marty, you're you know I'm coming to you next. So what are your three? I, I can't I can't disagree with Catan. Um, you know, I'm probably one of those guys that where if you were to give me a choice of games to play and Catan was in there. I don't know how it would move to the top of my list, but for somebody that's just starting out, it, yeah, you know, that was our first casual corner game that we covered. And I think we did it for a reason because if, if there's one game you want to try, that's it. I'm still surprised. There are a lot of uh, hobby gamers day that actually have never played it. Um, that have played all these other games, but have never sat down to play it. And I even tell them, you need to go and play this once just to see what it's all about. So definitely that one, um, for one, um, 
Lords of Waterdeep is interesting. You know, I was not going to throw that in there. That That is such a new game. Uh, I guess it's only been out, what, a year. Um, but I think that is such a good introduction to a worker-style placement game, which is a big Euro-style game. I can't honestly think of a better intro. And I know I'm, I'm following along with what Todd said, but now the the third, I'm probably going to go something probably a little more complex because um, I'm probably going to say Puerto Rico. Uh, I don't know that I would throw that out as the the first game you want to try, but the mechanics of that game I think is so different from like Catan or Lord uh, or uh, uh, Lords of Waterdeep that it'll give a different feel than than the other two. So, Tony, what are your three? Well, I, I would agree with you. I'm not going to be a dissenter here and say, oh, I would never. But Catan, definitely. And I'm one of those people that have only played the base Catan. I've never had the joy of doing the expansions. Todd, hint, hint, bring some time. <laughs> okay. Um, Cities and, and Knights. I love If I play, I have to play Cities and Knights. So. Okay, we'll see. I haven't had that experience yet. Would love to do that. And then I would agree with you, Marty. Puerto Rico, I'm, I'm you know, after the decimation I played on y'all on Saturday night, um, <laughs> I would I would have to say it's... You had to throw that in there, I, didn't you? knew you? I did. You knew I'd come back to it, Todd. I, I, I put a spank on them that was unreal. It was... He, he beat everybody by like 15 points. It wasn't even funny. Wow. All of us all of us were within two or three points of each other, and Tony was like 15 points ahead of everybody else. Nice. You, you, go, sh- you go sugar plantations. But I do. <laughs> I, I, I like Puerto Rico um, a lot. Uh, a lot more than when I when we first played it. In the second, I was I'm really getting into that, and I don't know if this counts, Todd. You let me know, but um, a game that Marty and I played up at Origins that I took a chance on, and that my family really loves to call. Would that one count? Uh, it's not direct conflict. You're placing your tiles, and you're having to do your base camps. It's worker placement, and it is victory points. Yeah, I'm pretty sure to call is. I've only played it on the iPad, so I haven't finished the whole game because I found that I have a hard time learning a game on the iPad. But um, from what I understand of it, it seems like it would fit the Euro mode. Yeah, and I think from Marty, for me, for our people to give a try, it's an older game. Like Todd said, it is on the iPad, easy to access. But I, I think that's an excellent game, a different genre, a different type of worker placement, um, jungles, Indiana Jones, that kind of thing. So those are my three. You know what? Hold on. I'm going to change one. No, no. Uh, we don't I, have now time I just for thought, that. No. I, no, I just thought. In there, we talked about it. Puerto Rico is complicated. And if I'm just introducing somebody, I'm not going to throw Puerto Rico at him. But what I will throw at him is Ticket to Ride. In fact, I may throw Ticket to Ride to somebody before I do Catan. In fact, I have done it before because I think it's easier to understand and to explain. There's there's less rules there. I think that's a good intro no, style game. I agree. And I'll admit, I actually just got it. Uh, for my dad for um, a present because I thought, you know, for someone who's used to playing cards um, mm-hmm. and it's particularly cards where you're trying to make, you know, sets or runs or whatever, it would be a kind of a familiar experience. So I could see that being a good transition game. And, and it, was, it was kind of funny you, you mentioned dad. It was it was my parents. When I sat down and tried to teach my parents Catan, that took a while. And when I taught, t- taught Ticket to Ride, they grasped it easier and just seemed to enjoy it more because – they could get into it quicker. So yeah, I would have to agree with you there. Taught my mother-in-law, and she was like all over that. Catan blew her away, but Ticket to Ride, she kept wanting to play it all over Christmas. I was like, okay, this game's got to go back to Marty. This is it's killing me. <laughs> 
Well, Todd, we really appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to come on with us. And let's put it this way. Um, we're going to have you back again because uh, I think there's a lot of stuff that we can still cover. When we're just talking about some getting to the deeper aspects of the game of design and history of games and stuff like that. And, and uh, I think you have a lot to share, and we just really appreciate you coming on. No, thank you guys for having me, and thanks for letting me uh, borrow the microphone for a little while. It's always a good time, and I'm glad to be part of such a fun show. Oh, awesome, awesome. Tony, you got anything to close out the segment? Uh, no, I think you've already told Todd we appreciate him coming on. He gave me a lot of grief about that last time, Todd. <laughs> <laughs> I was appreciating everybody. Go listen to the last podcast and listen. count how many times Tony says he appreciates something. Yeah, it could become a drinking game, I think, from that standpoint. Um, so, yeah, right. uh, no, that- I really do, and I appreciate the education got something to read there uh, moving forward and I hope uh, when we get this out there everybody will um, appreciate what you're you know the knowledge and depth of that you brought to the show for us Uh, that is uh, great no I look forward to uh, all the mail you'll get telling me that I'm wrong it should be entertaining. <laughs> well, we, we, yeah, right. You know, we, we, we've been waiting for comments, and you know, now as part of the Dice Tower Network, we'll, there you go. We there might get go. some. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and like I said, if the forums out there are any indication, anytime you bring up a merit trash in Euro, it's good for a good argument. So. Hopefully well, get, and that's what we're here for to debate. argue. So, <laughs> is it is it kind of like the debate of uh, which Robin would have been the best Batman or something like that? Yeah, exactly. Or who would win, Star Wars versus Star Trek? Yeah, there you go. Yeah. There you go. Um, so. And by the way, Dick Grayson's the answer to that. But anyway. <laughs> okay, anyway. All right. Well, once again, appreciate everybody uh, hanging in there with us on our discussion. I have I learned an incredible lot. Like, not all Euro games were written in German. So, um, <laughs> I hope y'all, some of y'all took something away from that. Great. Thanks, guys. Well, Marty, that was an incredible show. I think I'm sp- Ben, after that discussion with Todd, I appreciate him stopping by. Hey, there I go saying appreciate again. <laughs> uh, actually, that that was that was really good and very informative. I mean, uh, he kind of put us to shame with his prep work he did for the show. Yes, going to have to go out <clears throat> get us a um, book that the book he mentioned that you can definitely find the link at our blog at, or mm-hmm. on our page at Roll Dice Take Names. Dot com, yes. Or you'll also see some links at our Facebook page, Rolling Dice and Taking Names. And don't forget, if you can and you haven't already, please follow us at our Twitter account at, at Dice and Names. Did I do the tweet thingy right, at Dice and Names? That, that's it. I think you got it. Okay, I didn't know, you know, people say hashtag and all that. I'm still learning all this social media stuff, believe it or not. It's amazing. It just keeps changing. I know. I wish there was just one social media network that we could do, but I guess we have to do them all. Well, at this point, I'm sure people are like, you guys have gone on long enough, and it's time to wrap this thing up. So with that, we just like to thank everybody for listening. I hope to catch you next time. <laughs> <laughs>